Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 230, The Failure of Fashionable Anti-Unitarian Arguments. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, you'll hear the audio from my talk given on March 2nd, 2018. This was at a conference of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, a joint meeting with the Evangelical Theological Society that was hosted at the Havard School of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Houston, Texas. In this presentation, I'm criticizing the work of two accomplished Christian philosophers, one of whom is Professor Richard Swinburne. He was at the conference, and he was kind enough to actually attend my session and give me some feedback afterwards. So thanks to him for that, and also a special thanks should go to Dr. Joshua Ryan Ferris of Houston Baptist University, who was involved in organizing this conference on the EPS end. And I believe it was he also who was responsible for bringing Professor Swinburne to Houston. The kind of arguments that I'm talking about in this podcast are normally described as the first stage of a priori arguments for the Trinity, that is, an attempt to prove the Trinity without any empirical or even scriptural basis, just on the basis of concepts that we have, especially the concept of a perfect being. But I describe these arguments as anti-Unitarian. What the first stage of these arguments says is that it's impossible that there be a unipersonal God, that is, a God who just is a great self. Really? That's impossible? Yes, some people think so. And this has now trickled down to popular books and apologetics and even preaching occasionally. Some people think this is a hammer with which to crush the head of Islam. Myself, I don't think these arguments work. I also don't think they're really a central part of any historical Trinitarian traditions. That's why I call them fashionable anti-Unitarian arguments. There was a guy in the high Middle Ages who had some arguments like this, but I don't think he had a big effect on people. Other recent philosophers and theologians and preachers have attributed an argument like this to Augustine, the ancient and influential bishop, but I claim it's just not in the passage that they're gesturing at. These arguments really are new, and as far as I know, their popularity mostly goes back to the work of Richard Swinburne. In the first half of the talk, I take on versions of these arguments as presented by the Christian philosopher and apologist William Lane Craig. I think Craig is a very smart guy and does a lot of good work, but I don't think that these arguments, the way he develops them, are at all convincing. As far as I'm concerned, what I say in this podcast is sufficient to undercut his arguments that God cannot be unipersonal. After critiquing those arguments, I turn to the work of Richard Swinburne, who is his inspiration on this topic. I argue that he misreads Augustine, but it turns out that Swinburne's reasoning on this topic is deeper and trickier to figure out. And I have to say, I don't think that I really get to the bottom of it here. I don't think during this presentation that I fully represent his complicated thinking on this topic over a span of more than two decades, and so I don't think I've done a good enough job evaluating his arguments, and he offers me a few corrections in the Q&A portion of the session. So all of this is a work in progress, but I thought you'd be interested in it. 
I'm still working on this paper, which will eventually have a new objection section where I try to do a better job representing Swinburne's arguments and critiquing them. Part of the difficulty here, as he briefly explains, is he's actually changed some of his reasoning over the years, and he doesn't always tell you when he's doing that. So you're reading things written several years apart, and you think it's just saying the same thing, and it sounds like it's saying the same thing, but really it's not quite saying the same thing. Also, we briefly discuss what he calls the Dionysian principle here, and he seems to hold that this is a pillar on which his argument rests, but I'm not sure he really needs it. See if you think that principle is true, and see if you think this sort of argument needs a principle like that. Here, then, is my session from the Southwestern Meeting of the Evangelical Philosophical Society on March 2nd, 2018. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Professor Swinburne. It's an honor to have you here. My talk is called The uh, Failure of Fashionable Anti-Unitarian Arguments. And so I'm focusing on the first step, really, of uh, an attempt to prove the Trinity from reason. And so I'm just going to jump right into it. In recent times, it has become fashionable in some evangelical circles to argue that only a triune God, or at least only a multipersonal God, can be perfect. In a unipersonal God, the argument concludes, must be imperfect. Thus, any theology on which God is a single self and yet is perfect is incoherent. If you want to believe in a perfect God on this way of thinking, you must abandon your Jewish, Unitarian, Christian, or Islamic concept of God as a great self. The main task in constructing such an argument is to find some feature F such that a unipersonal God can't have F and a perfect being must have F. It must be evident to even the Unitarian that both those features are true of that feature F, that a unipersonal God can't have it, and that a perfect being must have it. The most popular candidate for F is the quality essentially perfectly loving, being loving in the highest degree or in the best possible way, and this essentially so that it's not possible that one fails to be this way. The argument then, in its simplest form, premise one, necessarily God is perfectly loving. Two, necessarily being perfectly loving entails actually loving another. Premise three, necessarily any other God loves is either within God or is part of God's creation. Four, necessarily God was free not to create. And then we start drawing inferences from those premises. From four, it follows, necessarily this required other can't be part of this creation. Six, therefore, necessarily, God must have another within him to love. Seven, therefore, necessarily, it is not the case that God is unipersonal. That is to say that God is a single self. Unfortunately, there's no reason for anyone to accept two other than an ardent desire for there to be a sound argument with a conclusion like seven. Perfect lovingness is a character trait. Like any character trait, it may be had but not expressed. It doesn't imply being in an actual love relationship. It's like the trait friendly. Imagine a friendly man who has been shipwrecked on a desert isle. Now, sadly, the man is friendless. He has no other with whom to share his life. Still, he's a friendly man. If we put another suitable castaway on the island, he'll form a friendship with that person, or at least he'll have a strong tendency to do that. That's what it is to be friendly. It's to be disposed in appropriate circumstances to enter into and to remain within at least superficial friendships. Just so with the quality perfectly loving. It is having the disposition to act and react in perfectly loving ways if and when there is an other to love. In isolation, one may still be perfectly loving. At least this is conceivable. 
and no one has shown it to be contradictory and so impossible. And I'll talk about Professor Swinburne's arguments to this conclusion later. At this point, the would-be disprover of Unitarian theology may reach for some other F, some other features such as being generous, being creative, not being lonely. The first two, being essentially generous or essentially creative, do nothing to yield a compelling premise too. Being traits of character, we think they needn't be manifested, exercised, or acted upon to be had. Thus, the corresponding second premise would be false. We can also make this point with a parody argument, a joke argument. And so the second premise now reads, necessarily being perfectly forgiving entails actually forgiving another. But then God's free to not create, and anyone else you're going to forgive is either within God or it's part of creation. And so therefore, someone within God must need forgiveness. So I say such an argument, if sound, gets us two-thirds of the way towards proving a sinity, a trinity contain at least one sinner. But such a conclusion is unwelcome. In either case, there is evidently no mistake of reasoning. Each argument seems formally valid. But in our sinity argument, the second premise is just obviously false. But it's no less obviously false than is the second premise or first argument. Both arguments are unsound because their respective second premises are false. I think this second unwanted argument is parallel enough to make the point. But even if you think something is very different about this argument, that it has some defect not shared by the first, then still my previous points stand. The second premise is false when F is the essential quality of being perfectly loving, generous, or creative. What about non-lonely? This is not a character trait, a mere disposition but is a feature of one's actual experience that it lacks the distinctive pain of loneliness. It is plausible that a perfect being would have to be well off, which is to say in classical terminology, happy or blessed. And plausibly enough loneliness would rob a being of such a condition. So let us imagine that there is a unipersonal God who does not create or has not yet created. He's literally the only being in existence. So the furniture of the universe contains exactly one piece, God. Would this God be lonely? Well, certainly any solitary human being would be lonely. At first, just a little, but given enough time, very, very lonely. Man, as Aristotle observed, is a social animal, which flourishes only in the company of his fellows. But why think that a God or a divine self would be lonely if he were alone? I have no idea. We would need to rule out that a God could be perfectly content in just his own company, like an orangutan or a betta fish in a small bowl. A god who is a perfect being, plausibly, would know everything, have maximal power, not have bodily needs for things like food, sex, sensory pleasures, or rest, or hanging with his friends. He wouldn't be dependent on anything else for his existence or his perfections. But then it's hard to see why such a being, if alone, would be lonely. Indeed, so lonely as to be discontent and unhappy, something less than well-off. It would appear then that assertions that the sort of God Unitarian theists believe in would be lonely are just that, mere assertions, not supportable by any plausible argument or any other sort of evidence. Some presentations, particularly popular presentations of these types of arguments, trade on the ambiguity of the English phrase perfectly loving. On the one hand, as we've seen, it means a certain character trait, a trait which is entailed by being morally perfect. On the other hand, it may refer to an action, like the phrase beautifully whistling. 
Here, being perfectly loving implies that one is actually loving in the best or most perfect way. One then argues that the best kind of love must be love of another and perhaps of a peer as well. Thus, if there's one divine person who is truly perfect, he's morally perfect, and this allegedly implies that he must be performing the action of loving in the best way, and so there must be at least one more divine person. But it won't do merely to assert that a perfect being must perform that action. If we parse their words carefully, we'll see that the most philosophically astute proponents of arguments like this sense this ambiguity in the phrase perfectly loving. If it means an action, then it is by no means clear that being perfect entails performing that action. Thus, they reason from perfection to a character trait, and from there to an action. Let's look at this crucial move in the work of William Lane Craig, labeling where he has in mind a character trait and where he is talking of an action expressing that trait. He writes, God must be perfect. Now, a perfect being must be a loving being, character trait, for love, character trait, is a moral perfection. God, therefore, must be a perfectly loving being. That is, he must have that character trait. Now, it is of the very nature of love, character trait, to give oneself away, action. Love, character trait, reaches out, action, to another person rather than centering wholly in oneself. So if God is perfectly loving, character trait, by his very nature, he must be giving himself away in love to another action. The last sentence that Craig writes here appears to be a non sequitur. Truly, to be a loving person is to have a tendency or disposition to give oneself away, as it were, and to reach out to others, if there are any. It is, we all think, possible to be loving even while lacking any other to love. What if one is loving, character trait, in the highest degree or in the best way? Still, we see no contradiction in supposing that there is a perfectly loving being, character trait, who is alone. Anyone who claims there is a contradiction in such a scenario needs to show his work. That is, give a proof that starts with, there is a perfectly loving being who is not actually loving any other being, and ends with some P and not P. Craig hasn't even tried to do this, merely asserting a necessary connection between this particular character trait and this sort of action. Craig has been presented with the logical gap between his two claims that necessarily God is perfectly loving, and that necessarily God is loving another. A correspondent writes, Why not understand love as we understand God's other perfections? For example, I take it that God's perfect justice is not expressed until some moment after his creation rebels against him. If we can claim that God is just without having to express it until creation, then why not claim that a Unitarian God can be loving without creation, later expressing it towards creative beings. Craig answers first that justice manifests in ways other than punishment of sin, and so perhaps the persons of the Trinity manifest justice in those ways in eternity, independently of creation. But more fundamentally, Craig says, it's not enough to think of love as the disposition to love if some other person were to exist. Being loving is not merely the disposition to give oneself away to another if that other existed. Being loving includes actually giving oneself away to another. So this disposition cannot lie merely latent in God and never be actualized. It would follow, then, that a Unitarian God would have to create other persons necessarily, which is what your suggestion implies, but that contradicts what both Christians and Muslims believe about God's freedom in creating. 
Therefore, God must be a plurality of uncreated persons, which is what the doctrine of the Trinity affirms. So my argument comes down to this. Again, this is still Craig. Love cannot be reduced to a mere disposition, though it is at least that, it is far more than that. Therefore, the Unitarian concept of God is inadequate. What Craig says here is obviously false, that being loving involves actually giving oneself away to another. If this were true, then it would be a contradiction to say that a person stranded alone on a desert island is a loving person. But surely there actually has been such a person. That they were a loving person, even while alone, is shown by their soon coming to love, some new island mate or rescuer, right? The character just doesn't change the drop of a hat like that. It just manifests, so they must have been loving before. We should probably read Craig as speaking loosely here, though, using being loving to abbreviate being essentially perfectly loving. Still, he has merely asserted that this can't only be a disposition, an unrealized disposition. He has given us no reason to agree that in the highest possible degree, the virtue of lovingness, had essentially or not, must manifest or be acted on. He's only asserted what looks like a non sequitur, which is necessarily God is essentially perfectly loving, therefore necessarily God is loving another. This seems as clear a mistake as necessarily God is essentially perfectly forgiving, therefore necessarily God is forgiving another. His pseudo-analysis of the concept or property of being loving is of no help whatever. On occasion, Craig will briefly gesture at some other line of argument for his conclusion, perhaps sensing the weakness of his unsupported assertions that a unipersonal God can't be perfectly loving. Thus, Craig asserts that, in his words, on the Unitarian view, God is a person who does not give himself away essentially in love for another. He is focused essentially only on himself. Hence, he cannot be the most perfect being. Again, a glaring non sequitur. It is true that on the Unitarian view, God is a person who does not give himself away essentially in love for another. But it does not follow that such a God is focused essentially only on himself. Such a being would plausibly, being essentially omniscient, essentially have in mind the plethora of possible creatures which it is in his power to create, and being essentially perfectly benevolent, after creating, he would plausibly focus on each and every one of his many creatures. Again, talking about a unipersonal God, Craig has not put his finger on any imperfection which seems to be implied by a Unitarian understanding of God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I move from the student to the master. Now I'm going to shift gears to somebody who I think is better at this sort of arguments. In all of his writing on this subject, it would seem that Craig is a disciple of Swinburne. Does the master do better than the student? Certainly, Swinburne, too, is aware of the difference between a character trait and an action which expresses that trait. He writes, Perfection includes perfect love, 
character trait, there is something profoundly imperfect in a solitary divine individual. If such an individual is love, that is, has the character trait of being loving in the highest degree or in the best way, he must share, that is, must perform the action of loving another. A divine individual's love, character trait, has to be manifested, in other words, in the action of loving another. Notice that the entailment between the character trait and the action is here assumed and not argued for, but it needs arguing for because it is neither self-evident nor clearly supported by any obvious evidence. Just after this passage, Swinburne mentions another character trait, generosity. In a later presentation, he returns to this theme. First, he asserts that a perfect self would bring about an equal to love. He mentions that, in general, goodness is diffusive, which is an old kind of slogan from uh, Neoplatonism, Middle Platonism, basically. But he realizes that by itself, this is not going to support his claim. So he proceeds to extract an argument from Augustine. So Professor Swinburne writes, Augustine wrote in his book on diverse questions, 83, question 50, that if the father wished to beget the son, that is, cause the son to exist, he explains, and he was unable to do it, he would have been weak. If he was able to do it but did not wish to, he would have failed to do it because of envy, that is, because he wished to be the only divine person, a solitary God would have been an ungenerous God, and so no God. End quote. For my part, I can't see why Swinburne thinks there's an argument here in this passage by Augustine that a perfect self must cause the existence of another self to love. The whole passage in Augustine, all of section 50 in a modern translation is, since God could not beget something better than himself, for nothing is better than God, then the one whom he did beget, he had to beget as his equal. For if he had the desire and not the power, then he is weak. If he had the power and not the desire, then he is envious. From this it follows that God has begotten the Son as his equal. This is not an argument for the conclusion that the Father must beget another, Rather, it assumes that the father must beget another. It is an argument that when the father begets, the begotten one must be his equal. It can't be his superior, as there is not any possible being which is greater than a fully divine being, and it can't be his inferior. And so, in the paper, I discuss this a little bit more and analyze what I think Augustine's argument is, but the basic point is I don't, I don't think it's helpful to the point at hand here. So I, I uh, make a couple of criticisms of Augustine, but I'm going to move on. Augustine provides no help here, but Swinburne says more and seems to cast aside any need for controversial theses about divine generosity, divine envy, or even essential perfect lovingness. He writes, For the Father to cause the Son to exist would be a unique best act of the Father. And so... Since being perfectly good is an essential property of a divine person, the Father will inevitably always cause the Son to exist. Generosity drops out of the picture here. The argument, perhaps wisely, doesn't say anything more about character traits than that divinity implies being perfectly good. Yes, I agree with that. 
It seems to me that Swinburne's reasoning can be filled out to provide an indirect proof that there can't only be one divine self. So you could call this a new anti-Unitarian argument, and he's welcome to correct me if I've analyzed him wrongly. This is my analysis, not what, not his words exactly. I'm interpreting this as an indirect proof, you know, a reductio. You start with what you're trying to disprove, and you add a few premises, and you show how it leads to a contradiction, and then you deny the original supposition. So instead of going straight for your conclusion, you're kind of going about it in a roundabout way, right? So the thing we want to disprove is that there was a time when the Father is the only divine self. That's what we're trying to show is impossible. Okay, so that's the supposition for the reductio. So one, suppose that there is a time when the Father is the only divine self. Premise two, the Father is divine. Premise three, divinity implies perfect goodness. Four, a perfectly good being must do the uniquely best possible action available to him whenever such an action is available. And he notes oftentimes there isn't an action like that. But anyways, in cases where there is one, a perfectly good being will do the best. Okay. And then one more premise, and this is a very important one. Five, the uniquely best possible action which is available to the Father is to instantaneously cause there to be a second divine self. I'll elaborate on that in just a minute. So this is how the rest of the argument goes. It follows from two through five. Therefore, the Father must instantaneously cause there to be a second divine self. Therefore, there is not a time when the Father is the only divine self. And therefore, it is not the case that there is a time when the Father is the only divine self. Is this a compelling argument? It sidesteps issues about character, except for the claim the divine person must be morally perfect. Further, the argument seems to me like it's valid, and I would say that any Christian should agree with premises two and three. Unfortunately, many will find principled reasons to doubt four and or five. Suppose a kid comes to your door to trick or treat, and she holds out her treat bag to you. You look into your bowl of candies and notice the last Snickers chocolate candy bar sitting atop many clearly inferior candies which I don't have to name, things like bottle caps, okay? Does it display your moral imperfection if you hand her just something other than the Snickers bar? Generally, we have a wide degree of freedom in how much benefit we bestow on one another, consistent with moral duty and with the display of good character. For, I would say, is neither true by definition nor self-evident. There's a tradition in theodicy of saying that the greatness of the cosmos is enhanced by having beings with varying degrees of goodness or greatness in it. Analogously, one may think that a perfect being's actions may be overall more worthy or beautiful if they include actions with a variety of worth, even at the expense of sometimes foregoing a best available action. Still, perhaps many will find four plausible. There are stronger grounds on which to doubt five, Five assumes that divinity does not imply aseity, the property of existing independently of any other. If causing there to be an equal requires bringing about the existence of another being with aseity, then this won't be a best available action to the Father, as it is not a possible action, because it implies the existence of a being which does and does not exist independently of anything else. Right? Uh, it's caused, so it doesn't have aseity, but we just said it had aseity. It seems to me that a supremely perfect being must exist essentially, I say, 
And so it is absolutely impossible for a divinely perfect self to bring about or cause another divinely perfect self. Here we enter into the agonies of Trinitarian speculations. Some reject the traditional creedal language of eternal generation and eternal procession because such claims are not taught in the Bible and or because they imply that neither the Son nor the Spirit are fully divine, each having a cause for his existence, while full divinity requires aseity. One of those people, interestingly, is William Lane Craig. He denies generation and procession for both reasons, actually, the scriptural reason and the metaphysical reason. Other Trinitarians accept generation and procession language, but deny that these imply that the Father is the source, cause, or reason for the existence of the Son and the Spirit. In effect, they deny that we can understand the meaning of such language. Others go further, denying that there are any causal relationships among the persons of the Trinity, such as my former teacher, um, Stephen T. Davis. Swinburne's argument presupposes that eternal generation is real and causal, and that neither absolute perfection nor full divinity imply aseity. Let me grant all of that to Swinburne for the moment, and so grant that it is a possible action for one divine self to cause there to be another divine self. Even so, granting that this action is metaphysically possible and so is available to an omnipotent and omniscient being like the Father, why should anyone think that this is a uniquely best available action? Swinburne offers complex speculations in support of premise five here in my analysis of his argument. And this, I think, more fully explains his reasoning, which I sort of compressed a little bit in that analysis. He argues that a soul divine self would be faced with two uniquely best actions. One action is a means to the other, although all of this, in his view, happens at a single moment. Logically, I think we can divide this moment into stages. Okay, so I'm talking about what's supposed to happen instantaneously, but there's still a kind of order to it. So let's say at stage one, just logically speaking, there's just the Father. There's just a single divine self. Presumably there's self-love here, but not interpersonal love, because there's only one person, one self. There isn't what Swinburne says is the best kind of interpersonal love, which is where one shares all of oneself with a peer. Thus, the best action available to the Father at stage one is to bring about another peer to love, another divine self. Because he must always do the best when there is a unique best, he must make this happen, and that's stage two. So at stage one, the Father is alone, but he is compelled by his goodness to bring about the existence of, of the second, of the Son, But there is yet a more valuable kind of love, Swinburne argues, where one both shares all he has with a peer, and then the two lovers cooperate to spread the love to an additional peer. They cooperate for the benefit of a third party. Thus, our first two perfect persons, who must always do the best when there is a unique best, must cooperate to bring about a third divine self with whom to share their love. This is stage three. Okay, but again, it's all supposed to be instantaneous, but anyway, you can mentally separate the stages. So there are two actions there, the production of the Son and then the production of the the third person by the Father and the Son. And the first is for the sake of the second, because the Father knows all along that he needs to get this great good of uh, sharing for the benefit of a third party. And so as a means to that, he's going to first make the Son, okay? But it's not really first. 
If you want to know why this process of deity expansion doesn't continue, right, why doesn't this keep going until we get four, five, six divine persons? His answer is that there is no additional great qualitative leap in value were there to be a fourth divine peer added to the loving mix. So the value leap from stage one to two where you have just the Father to the Father and the Son, the value leap was going from a situation with only self-love to a situation with pure love in addition to self-love. The value leap from stage two to stage three was the additional good of being able to cooperate so as to expand the circle of love to a third, to cooperate to benefit a third. But there would be, in Swinburne's view, no comparable increase were the three to cooperate for the benefit of a fourth. Being perfect in knowledge, power, and goodness, this end was being aimed at all along. Stage two is a means to the end of stage three. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I try my hand at objecting to Professor Swinburne's argument. My objection to all of this is that it seems that there is no uniquely best action when it comes to either the means here or the end. So to go from a situation with only self-love in reality to a situation which also has peer love, what is required is that we add at least one peer. It's not required that we add only one peer. If a divine self can produce another divine self, there would seem to be no reason why he couldn't produce two or three or 74 more divine selves. So at stage two, there would seem to be indefinitely many greater actions available to the Father. So just to take the simplest case, instead of stage two being the Father produces the Son, why doesn't the Father just produce two more? And that seems like it's a better action than just producing a Son, because now there are two interpersonal relationships or three. There's not just uh, the one, right? Again, to get from a situation where there is mere peer love to where there is peer love which is enhanced by cooperating to benefit another, it requires at least one additional peer on the receiving end, but it doesn't require only one. So it looks like there could be a stage two which is better than the one that has been suggested. You're comparing stage two where God generates the son and then the son and the father and son generate a third. Compare it with this. Why doesn't the father generate two to begin with? And then the three of them together cooperate to benefit a fourth. And it looks like there's just more love in that scenario. So it looks to me like it's better. But, you know, we can just keep adding, we can keep spreading the love up to infinity, it seems to me. So it seems to me there's not a best available action here. So it seems there is no uniquely best means here, nor is there a uniquely best end. We need to go back to stage one and ask what could conceivably compel a single perfect person to bring about any peers at all, granting that to be possible. Do we really want to start this ball rolling, so to speak, when there seems to be no way of stopping it? That single divine self, isn't he supposed to be perfect? 
existing without need in a fully well-off condition? Why would he be forced by his goodness to produce pure love at all? Why would he be forced to produce any of the whole plethora of goods which are included in such a wonderful universe as the one we inhabit? There's no one else for him to be obligated to, and we don't have any idea why he would owe such a good to himself. I conclude that Swinburne's new anti-Unitarian argument is unsound, since premise 5 is false. In conclusion, if Allah, the Jews Yahweh, and Christian Unitarians, one God, the Father Almighty, are shown to be inadequate in comparison to the Trinity, it will have to be on other grounds. Perfect being theology alone does not seem to be enough. There could be other grounds on which to criticize. I suggest that Trinitarians should let go of their desire for an easy victory here. As with Mackey's logical argument from evil, they are trying to do too much too quickly. Contrary to Mackey, monotheism simply doesn't collapse into incoherence by clearly implying that there is and that there is not evil. Likewise, as best as we can tell, Unitarian theologies don't immediately collapse into incoherence implying that God is both perfect, because they explicitly say that God is perfect, and yet not perfect because God, in their view, lacks some feature that a perfect being must have. If it can be shown that Unitarian is less likely than Trinitarian theology, or is even manifestly incoherent, some other arguments will have to be made. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Q&A time, and the second questioner is Professor Swinburne himself. Yeah. But you don't have that issue with the perfectly loving bit, um, right? We, that goes through. Um, 
such that you know, right, it's, it's consistent with all those other protections, but it has the unfortunate consequence for, for your view that it entails the existence of more than one person. Yeah, but the cure is worse than the disease. To say that God doesn't have any unrealized potentialities is a total disaster. I wish yeah, God would create lots of neat things that haven't been created, but then the only things he can do are the things he does do. For, okay, you don't have to cash it out that way. Just cash it out in terms of perfect being theology, right? It would be better if God's character, good character traits were realized. Right? Just, just do it that way. I can grant that, yeah. Then we don't have to get into all the mm-hmm. AT debate about you know, uh, uh, pure actuality. Right, but the point is, and that if we have a perfect being theology method here, right, we, we have reason to eschew your reading of perfectly forgiving because it's inconsistent with the other divine perfections. But we don't have similar reason to eschew a fully actualized reading of perfectly loving because that is consistent with all the other divine perfections. You can't say that God has to have something just because it would be good if he had it. It's a good thing for God to be in charge of a creation, but you don't want to say that's necessary and implied by the existence of God, right? So, yes, it's good if God is in a relationship of uh, pure love. I would grant that. Or just friendship. So you think, I mean, so is Unitarianism then committed to the rejection of perfect being theology? Is that what you're telling me? No, not in any way. I mean, they can make mistakes with it just like anybody can, but no. Perfect being theology has to do with God's essential uh, defining attributes and things like having forgiven a certain person or uh, even being in charge over creation aren't the right sort of thing. And I'm suggesting one of those, you might think that one of those um, essential defining attributes is perfectly and actually loving another. And then right, we, we, we can test for that. We can test for whether that's actually uh, perfection. In, that's not, in yeah, that's not an intrinsic it. attribute. It's, it's a relationship that he's in. So it's not... Well, that depends on whether he's a trinity or not. If he's a trinity, then it is intrinsic. Uh, yeah, well, we're switching between the Father and the trinity here. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't feel, I don't get the pull of that. Like, um, how, would you, how would you argue for that rather than just merely assert it? Well, I think a perfect being has to be actually loving. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I don't do that's the hard theology. I'm, you know, I'm just saying it's a view that's out there, and it would be weird if Unitarianism entails the rejection of perfect being theology. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. It sounds like it does. The perfect being theology isn't committed to the inference that you said. Professor Swinburne. Thank you very much for the detailed attention. As you realize, I am talking about all this at hour's uh, time, the lecture, and going through the moves then. So I um, don't want to concentrate too much on the moves now. Um, yes, I do think perfect goodness is the right thing to go from rather than the other ones. And um, I am appealing to the Dionysian principle that goodness proliferates itself. I mean, there is something odd in and a good being, as it were, not, not producing anything, not producing more goodness, keeping it all to himself. That does seem, seem a bit odd. But, uh, correction, I keep change, uh, changing my views, but at any rate, developing my views. And uh, the argument which you give here is the argument in the Christian God, where the uh, 
policies to which I am appealing are the goodness of uh, creating an equal and co-creating a third. Uh, and I appeal to Richard of St. Victor, but rereading Richard of St. Victor, I feel he's got a better argument uh, for, for what the qualities are. And in fact, I use this argument in uh, uh, Was Jesus God and elsewhere. And um, uh, what Richard of St. Victor is appealing to in the third stage, in, in, in the as I'm the first stage, it's the same as Augustine. Uh, it's good that goodness will proliferate as much goodness as possible, and it's so good to have another exactly like him with him shared. But the third stage, I argue in Christian God on the basis of the goodness of cooperating and producing goodness. But in fact, what Victor's arguing for, and I think it is far superior to that, um, he argues that if you really love someone, you will find a third person for them to love and be loved by who is not yourself. That is to say, it, it, it's unselfish love. Three is the minimum for unselfish love. And that seems to me a very good argument. I mean, the, the intuitions behind it are the goodness of procreation in, in, the, in the marriage. Uh, there is something wrong with it marriage which doesn't procreate, it should spread itself in this way and find for the other spouse someone for them to love and be loved by. Put that way though, it's much easier to close the sequence because um, three is uh, the humanness uh, for unselfish love. Uh, and uh, of course in the case of finite beings, uh, you might say more and more and more the better. But given that uh, in a sequence of more and more and better, there is no best, and not forever, uh, therefore, if there's no best action, any action on that sequence is what a, a perfect being is none the worse for producing X uh, other beings than for, then uh, it's not worse for doing that than producing X plus one beings. Given that, then it will follow. So long as the minimum is satisfied, so long as there are three, uh, it's also the maximum because he doesn't need to produce a fourth in order to be perfectly good. <laughs> if he did, then he would have to produce an infinite number and even that wouldn't be enough. Uh, in the case of any such sequence, if, if it's good to have X's and there's no limit to X's, a perfectly good being uh, can only do the logically possible and anywhere on that line would be the realization of perfect goodness. And therefore, it would follow if, that uh, a fourth divine being is not necessary for the realization of the perfect goodness. And given that, then a fourth divine being would have to be created by a voluntary act. And a being created by a voluntary act can't be divine. Therefore, it's uh, for divine being three is not merely the minimum, but the maximum. Yeah, the way you define divine. Actually, I was going off of Was Jesus God more than the earlier book. Uh, boy, I have a lot of questions about that, but I guess one is, I mean, why should we accept the Dionysian principle? Is that to you just a self-evident truth? Because well, it seems like... Most truths, I must say. Um, yes, I mean, uh, 
a good being who just said, I'm going to be by myself, I'm not going to produce anything more. It does seem a deficiency. It's plausible, yeah, if you're talking about a tendency, but you have to be talking about a guaranteed result here, and that doesn't seem obvious to me. So, so yeah, but out. you're saying if he's perfectly good, he abs- it's it's, a, it's impossible that he not produce yes, yes, uh, more goodness, and uh, that seems too strong a principle to me. But I think we're over time. Thank you so much. Next week, you'll hear more from Professor Swinburne. A couple hours after my session, he got up and gave a talk for the plenary session. So next week, you get to hear his latest presentation of this type of argument in full. This week's thinking music has been the track Hot Drop Potato by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Until next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.